Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, welcome to My Good Bad Brain, or the pre-roll part of My Good Bad Brain. If you enjoy My Good Bad Brain, please support the podcast at patreon.com slash mygoodbadbrain. Um... Yeah, that's it. Oh, reviews are nice too. Okay, theme song. Let's do it. Welcome to my good bad brain. I'm a normal person, so I'm insane. I've got depression and ADHD, but I'm doing better since I medicated me. I'm still not always sure whether I exist or what be. Person even really is, but I figured out a long time ago that being alive is beautiful. Hi, everyone. Welcome to a brain breather episode of My Good Bad Brain. I, you know, I've returned to this sort of pattern of every other week going interview and then solo thing where I let my brain breathe, and those vary, obviously, in the sort of vibe and mood and function, I guess. Um, I feel positive today, so that's good. Sometimes brain breathers aren't like that. They're kind of dark and weird, and it's when I'm really in a bad place. Um, this week, I want to talk about the idea of being alone. The idea of it, the reality of it, I guess. Um, because I think I'm alone a lot or, well, I am, and I'm also not, I have a fraught relationship with being alone and I have a feeling that may be resonant because I think a common trait of dealing with these good, bad brains, mental illnesses, which still, I, I kind of just... I think I, I've been defaulting to saying mental stuff <laughs> because all the other words feel so loaded. And while I go back and forth about whether or not words matter, <laughs> I definitely think words matter. I definitely think words matter, but I think they can matter as much or more also in their vagary in vulgarity or in, uh, you know, the way the word fuck can mean like a million different things that makes it beautiful. It makes it vague. Um, makes it inflected. I don't know. Sometimes it's better to not put too fine a point on something. I think it's related to, uh, well, I think it's related to this idea that I've, I've talked about, uh, previously about holding things lightly that if we put too much stock into the mystical, magical power that words undeniably have, I mean, I just think that the power they have is something that humans grant them. That doesn't mean necessarily that we are fully responsible for the power words have over us. I don't think that's realistic. I think people can say things and those words can be hurtful or, or um, empowering based on what other people put into them too. It's not something you're wholly responsible for. But I go back and forth. I just think illness doesn't feel right when I talk about mental things or disorder um, I don't feel correct about that. I don't think it's even, I don't know, what are other healthy ones that healthy, quote unquote, you know, correct, politically correct or industry standards. I'm not sure. But for those, you know, DSM things, things that people get diagnosed with or that we just get a name for colloquially, depression, anxiety, blah, 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 mental stuff. 
But it seems pretty common that one of the things about having mental stuff is that they are things very closely connected to aloneness. And in my life, I come from a pretty big family. I have three other siblings, so we're all on top of each other, just like a little pack of wolves growing up. And um, I had two more stepsisters who are still part of our family very much, even though we're all spread out. And we've had different uh, combinations of parents and step-parents and whatnot, grandparents coming in and out all the time in very present ways. So it was a big, big family. And I, without realizing it, developed a great fear and difficulty with aloneness, with the idea of even being alone. And I've told this story that, you know, we tell stories about ourselves and I think we can create our own apocrypha sometimes where we're not really sure if the story is true anymore or if that even matters. There's this great uh, book that we read in high school called The Things They Carried. It's about Vietnam and written by a Vietnam uh, veteran who was also a great writer. Uh, Tim O'Brien, I think it was called. But... um. He has a chapter about a true war story, like what's a true war story? And the basic point of it is that there's no such thing as truth. There's also a book I uh, I really recommend anybody who wants to try to be a better writer. It's on writing poetry, but I think it uh, it's called The Triggering Town or Triggering, something like that, Triggering Town. And I forget the name of the author. I'm the worst uh, about that stuff. But that makes the same point that truth really all you're responsible for as a writer is telling the truth of how something felt. And so these apocryphal stories and when you're talking about your experience of things, kind of the way I describe the don't kill yourself list items for people when I ask them to add to it, things that you find in our subjective reality to be objective reasons to stay alive that, um, We all have a truth for ourselves. And one of my truths, one of the stories that I have in my archives that I think of a lot is about this aloneness. Uh, Having a moment when I was in my young 20s, I had only been in Los Angeles for a little while, um, the first place I'd lived far away from where I grew up. And I'd come out here with a girlfriend and uh, with a, a dear friend at the time, and we all lived in the same place together. And there was this day... I think it was a Sunday, that's how I remember it, when my girlfriend went to do her hostess job at a restaurant, and my buddy, who was living with us at the time too, he he used to play poker to pay his rent, and he went to a casino near Los Angeles, and he was gone, and I had this strange realization that it may have been the first time I was alone in my whole life, without any other people in my presence. And that may or may not be true. It seems like that can't be true, that I must have been alone before then because I had the idea of what alone meant and the feeling tone of it. I don't know. But, you know, you always have family around. I mean, I remember being alone in my home at times. Uh, it, It can't be true. But it was the first time in a long time, and I had a minor freak out. At this point, my codependent... I mean, I didn't know the word codependency. My codependent patterns and instincts were in full swing. And in that relationship at the time, we're both very young and uh, I think our hearts were in a good place. I don't think anyone's hearts are in a bad place, their patterns when they're young, but we were really on top of each other and intertwined and together constantly. And um, I was talking last night with a pal about uh, the strangeness of when you're a teenager or a young person, a child even, you, your emotions are real, your experiences are real, but you have no moderation over them. And it almost makes things more real and more intense, sort of this Romeo and Juliet thing of the real story of Romeo and Juliet when you back out of it is about two preteens, basically, a 13-year-old and a 14-year-old, 15-year-old, something like that, who have known each other for half a day and kill each other about it, or kill themselves, but <laughs> potato, potato, and that kind of a thing. Um, and that there's a quality, there's this thing about rattlesnakes I've heard, or cobras, or maybe it's just venomous snakes in general, but that it's actually worse to be bitten by a baby venomous snake because grown-up 
venomous snakes learn to ration their own venom. So they might hit you with a dose that's just enough to paralyze you or deter you, but that a baby, so that they have some in reserve, right? So if they had to strike again or defend themselves again, they would have more venom to protect themselves with. While a baby doesn't have that moderation and that a young venomous snake just dumps everything they got into you and there's very little chance that you'll survive it. And that emotions of young people are like that too. Everything is so real, so big, so intense, and that it is. It's not your experience that that isn't wrong. It's just how it is. And so as this kind of a young person in my 20s where you have uh, an intellect already that's starting to run on the, the horsepower that you'll have as an adult and you have a physical body that does it and all these kinds of things, but your wisdom hasn't maybe caught up and you definitely don't have the boundaries or sense of self, likely. Some people are lucky to be very fucking <laughs> raised in, I guess, healthy ways, but I doubt that. I don't know. I think everyone's a kid, right? And as that sort of person, this volatile, explosively feeling person with my own long-to-be-diagnosed mental stuff, I had a freak-out. I had this meltdown being alone. Holy fuck, I didn't like it. I always needed someone to just be present. And I don't know what my feelings were at the time other than them being panic and anxiety. And in the intervening years, that over a decade since that experience has happened, I've thought a lot about being alone, and I've spent a lot of time being alone, and I've spent a lot of time thinking about being alone. And when we talk about this mental stuff, if we're experiencing difficulties like depression, anxiety, obsession, um, compulsion, stuff like that, uh, whatever, you name it, that aloneness is something that isn't talked about in positive terms. Uh, I spend a lot of time here, and I think correctly so. I see a lot of other people do it too. When we talk about mental health and wellness, really try to stress ideas of community and connection. Um, whenever some mental health tragedy happens in the news, uh, we see a lot of people begging that if you're hurting to reach out and feel connected and not to isolate. And I agree with all of that completely. I hope that my good bad brain has engendered some sense of connection and togetherness, even if we've never seen each other face to face, we've never spoken back and forth and on a live and present way, that just the recordings and knowing that this exists creates this invisible network of other good bad brains that we know we're never alone, that there's not something uniquely toxic about our experience. Our experience is 100% singular. You can't have it be not that. But there is some shared experience that the phrase that always comes into my brain is uh, makes us more possible. That's how I feel. Whenever I feel resonance and I see myself in other people outside of myself, recognize some struggle that I have that I thought I had to deal with alone, just knowing other people are dealing with it sort of forms this bond that suggests you're not alone. You couldn't be. We're all in something together. So with that idea in place, I want to talk about being alone and some of the harsh maybe realities with it and how I think there are, are a lot of benefits and wonderful things about facing these harsh realities and that they also uh, contain a lot of less harsh realities, very nurturing and healing and important aspects of it too, of being alone. It's not just this scary idea. So I'm going to say, first of all, tread lightly into this stuff that I'm saying. I don't know where you are at. And there are times where someone affirming to me that I'm alone, that you, I am indeed alone, would be really fucking hard. And I don't want to be that for you right now. I want this to be received as something theoretical and as real as you want it to be. And I want it to be as useful as you may or may not find it. Because I know it's possible 
that it wouldn't be. I was thinking Alex Trebek recently, the Jeopardy guy, had this post about this post. I mean, they're all posts now. He said something. He he was diagnosed with a terrible illness, and he had this beautiful announcement about it, basically saying that he has this thing. His chances don't look good, but he's he's planning to continue to do the show like he always has and fight it and bear it as as hard as he can. And I was so moved by it because it had something that seems to be really lacking this day and age in the media and in the world. And also that is so beautiful in a way that I didn't think I would find beautiful. These are things I don't consider to be virtues. Certainly not myself, but just in general, I don't necessarily think of them as virtues instinctively. And that is dignity and stoicism. This way he's comporting himself in this intense situation and this admission in a, in an age when what seems to get attention and, and people find moving and that I always, I guess, preferred people crying and breaking down. That's been sort of turned into this way to just get a thumbnail for something that makes you click on it. This, this clickbait aspect of human emotion. And I, I really wonder too about what a lot of y'all think about, human emotion and reading it because watching, you know, especially with YouTubers and such, there's so much that's so evidently fake. There's such a strange and and reality TV that I worry we are maybe losing some of our nuance and ability to read what other people are going through. I started this off by saying I was in a positive place and I do feel in a positive place. I actually think I put off recording this week because I didn't want to do another one while I was in a really dark situation. But I was, I've been having interesting epiphanies, aren't we always? Um, A lot of them came to a head because of this jujitsu tournament I'm competing in the day after tomorrow and because of a therapy session I had where I discussed things that was bringing up and then some a discussion I had with my partner, with my lover, about my basic assumptions about what she thinks about me and how I approach my life and this sort of reality I assume to be there, which I don't think is, which is very self-hating, which is basically one that uh, I'm embarrassing and I'm weird and uh, she doesn't actually like me and subconsciously needs an anchor in her life and so that's why she stays with me and um that I understand all of it because I'm fucking bad and all these things right etc 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 and I was looking at my horrible anxiety I was having last week about this jiu-jitsu tournament and trying to understand it I've done jiu-jitsu I do it all the fucking time I fight all kinds of people in class. Uh, No problem. Don't sweat it. Don't worry about it. And I'm not trying to be a professional fighter. I'm not putting food on the table fighting. I'm literally going out here to do something I love, to challenge myself, to experience something with other people. Why do I give a fuck if I lose or win or whatever? Why do I have anxiety on this event? And I'm not going to die. There is a somatic fear, sure, about entering into a sort of a mortal conflict-esque vibe of fighting someone else with your body. Even if you're not striking, we are trying to choke each other out. We are trying to lock each other's joints in ways that would potentially cripple us. But there's rules and there's tapping and it's just a game. Ultimately, it's a sport. So there's no real thing to fear. And I realized talking to my therapist and thinking about this thing that ended up coming out in this argument that started as an argument and then we kind of got into what are we really fighting about and then this admission and realization and then a healing and a wonderful experience of of my lover and partner telling me that's not how she feels once I could say it out loud and cry about it and break down about it. But that in this fear, I realized that what I was afraid of was failing. And I'm so afraid of failing in my life that I've never tried my hardest. Maybe once or twice, I don't know, a few times, I'm sure sometimes. But the overall sense being, I'm not trying my hardest, even at the things that I love, Because how fucking scary and crushing and awful 
is the idea that even when I try my hardest, I still don't quote unquote succeed or get what I want. I am forced to face this idea that I'm not the fucking greatest thing or something like that, that I actually am horrible. Which isn't true, right? That wouldn't be true if it was what I found out. And the, the realization that I've avoided finding out if I am wanting or not, that I've avoided finding out truly what I'm capable of and if I've got what it takes to do the things I want to do or not, that is truly the only failure there is. Not fully investing and putting myself out there and risking myself, risking my ego, risking finding my actual limits is the only thing that's a failure. Not the actual failing, it's the not trying, right? And in this realization, I started looking at all these other assumptions. What are ways that I prevent myself from trying? What is like this one that I assume that somebody doesn't like me instinctively, even though they're the person closest to me, who loves me the most, who's known me the longest time, who's been through so much shit with me and still come out on the other side. That would suggest that someone loves you and actually is quite um, adoring of you. But my brain goes, no, 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 they must be broken because they like me. That must be true. And this way I build some limit in to know that I never have to actually try hard in this relationship. I never actually have to try hard even at what I do. There's this odd, I thought I saw it in my father a little bit when he was having his breakdown. There's a quality of he didn't believe people loved him and that he was going to self-destruct as much as possible to see if people still loved him as nothing. If he was worse than nothing, if he was negative and toxic to people around him, would people still love him? Because he was so worried he'd, he wasn't valuable and that things would uh, not work out or something like that if he actually was his full self. There's this amazing, that Nelson Mandela quote, right? I, maybe I'm getting the wrong, but I, I've always thought of it as a Mandela quote that like the thing we are afraid of is that we are too powerful, is that we are too beautiful, that that is, that is our real fear. That is the real thing that holds us back is our fear of our own immense infinite power and goodness and now how does that tie into being alone well i think there's a scary reality that ultimately on some existential level Well, there's a lot of truth that existentially ultimately we can't be alone we're all this intermingling of elements and electrons and molecules and whatnot, blah, 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 all in the same place together, in the same it together, whatever. There's also an element that ultimately we're all alone, that ultimately your subjective experience of life and objective one is one that is only in your own head. The solipsistic question, right? That you can only experience things as inputs that you're getting from the world around you and in your own inside consciousness. And I think it's also scary to connect this to the reality that if we have mental stuff, if we have blocks or difficulties or pains or diseases or chemical imbalances and whatnot, ultimately the only thing that will make our lives more manageable or possible to live while we can find other people who will help it and make it feel more possible, the ones who will actually do it is ourselves, that we have to do it on our own ultimately. And I think maybe there's something in that with the jiu-jitsu, why I'm attracted to the sport. Ultimately, yeah, you fight with your team. They're all with you in spirit and in your heart and blah, 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 blah. But ultimately, it's you out there alone. Not alone. You have an opponent, which I think that's a whole other thing I won't get into. But that's all part of the dialectic reality, right? That ultimately we're alone, but we're never alone. And that's always true. And they're going back and forth. But focusing on this one, this subjective and common experience of feeling alone and being afraid of it and us trying to avoid it as hard as we can, avoiding it, because it's scary there. And if you're not ready to be there alone or if you're spending way too much time alone such that you think that there's no help around you and no one else who could understand this experience and you're really just doomed to do that forever, then for sure, let's focus on the connection because that's real. The connection is real and you're not alone. You're never alone. But. If we want to go into this other reality, this one where we might feel stuck sometimes and try to like empower ourselves to be there, let's talk about being alone. Let's talk a little bit about ideas of dignity and stoicism, things that I don't have, okay? I am 
very expressive. I don't know if you know that listening to this podcast. I'm very open. I'm very messy. I'm very declarative. And I think things that are going on for me right now are real and must be real in infinity and eternity. And, ah, you know, there's this impossible, slippery, runaway stallion experience to my emotions which is why I think so much of this cultivating mindfulness and such and thinking about ideas like dignity and stoicism can be helpful. In a puritanical culture, in a patriarchal culture, dignity and stoicism, I think, get a real bad rap, and rightfully so. I'm not talking about oppressing yourself, suppressing emotions to the point that they become toxic and you never look at them. I'm talking about stoicism and dignity in a very active, good faith way. The same way you can be existential in a way that thinks everything's absurd and here for no reason, and that's why it doesn't matter. Or you could look at it and say everything is here uh, with no reason and uh, no rhyme and whatnot, and that's why it's so important. You know, you can look at the same thing and come on both sides. Stoicism and, and dignity in aloneness can be something that you're using to suppress feelings, ignore them, not face them, and then be a dick to everybody else who's having them and just trying to not really feel anything and impose your way of life on the world around you and blah, blah, blah. I think that's the way we mostly see it. And this kind of bullshit way that doesn't acknowledge the truth of what you're going through. I think the good faith version of it that I have been thinking about a lot is the one that says, this is where you draw your armor. This is where you draw your sword and shield internally for the dream realm of facing your demons and your dragons. You know? Stoicism, to me, as an idea I'm exploring, this idea that you don't show what you're going through. You have a stiff upper lip. You suck it up. You grin and bear it. You go through it. I think in its good faith form has a lot more to do not with suppressing your feelings and experiences, but facing them and feeling them completely and wholly and saying to them, I'm still here and I still have control over my experience and I still have choices I can make about it. And it doesn't matter if it's physical pain or emotional, spiritual pain, mental pain. I can face them fully. I can know that I'm doing it alone, ultimately, in some ways. And I can know in my experience that I am strong enough to do it. I am strong enough to experience those things and not give away the steering wheel to them. Not give away the reins to the horse to these feelings. That you can still choose to be who you want to be. That's hard, especially when you don't like yourself or you think who you are and being who you are is bad and you have assumptions about that and beliefs about that that are hardwired in and you haven't figured out how to get around them. That can be hard. And I think in those ways, God damn, it is good to let the visions of people that we trust, who love us and who are generous to us, let those guide you more than yourself. If you experience anything with body dysmorphia, you know what this feels like. And sometimes it takes time. In hindsight, you go, wow, I thought it was so fucking ugly. I hated myself. What's wrong with me when you look at old pictures? And then you think, well, I still have those thoughts sometimes, don't I? Yes. In those times, rely on other people. Let the people you love or who love you, let their visions supplant your own if you need to. But I think it's good for emergencies to spend some time, especially when you're in a stronger place, a positive place, to develop some of this thought experiment around being alone. What if I was alone? What if I am alone with this? And almost work it like a simulation, maybe, I like to do. I don't know. That it's just an idea. Let me play with it. Am I, am I enough to handle my own experience, to face myself? And if you're not, what, is you, what are you not facing? For me, I was facing that I just fucking don't like myself. And that I'm really, really, really afraid after kind of having a life of being told, oh, you're smart or you have so much potential and blah, blah. So much. 
and feeling like my worth was only associated as my productivity and what I could do or be that was impressive or in a capitalist culture, right? What do you make? Not my creativity or just not my mere presence. Just existing, being a miracle and being worth something for that, which is what I believe. I didn't believe that in my core. I felt like I was very defiant of that. I had to, uh, I had to stand for that idea is what I'm trying to say. I was very defiant of this idea of potential. And I used that as an excuse to really sabotage myself, even doing the things that I love, that I want to do, that I want to achieve or create. And this fear, these convenient beliefs we maybe adopt because they allow our fears to thrive and exist, masquerading as something else, masquerading as a point of pride, masquerading as a principle. My fear that even if I try my hardest, I actually won't be good enough, masquerading as some Zen socialist concept of like, I shouldn't have to do anything to be valuable. That's true, of course. That's not what's at question. What's at question is, hmm, hmm, what is at question? Are you willing to risk for what you love? Are you willing to risk for what you want? Are you willing to be as embarrassing and, and potentially shameful as you'd have to be to really be yourself, depending where you're from and what sort of ideas you have about the kind of person you're supposed to be? It can be very scary and hard to break that, to break out of those molds. Our bodies do not really seem to care about our subjective well-being. Our nervous system and our brain seem to only care about keeping the organism alive. Depression is something that comes from concussions sometimes. I was just talking to my mom today. She's been really sick, and she was saying that she gets got really depressed. She's like, I think I'm having real depression in this illness. I don't know what's going on. She's bedridden. She's a very type A go, go, go person. And also half my genetics. And I was like, well, <laughs> that happens to me too. Man, I get, to, I get fucking depressed when I'm sick. And I shared this same thought with her because I had a real meltdown like a few weeks ago when I was, again, I had strep throat antibiotic thing and I just had a terrible experience. I don't know the headspace I get when I'm depressed. I heard this doctor uh, in some interview, I don't know, talk about the why depression may be a symptom of concussions. Secondary concussions are worse than the first one. So if you get a bad trauma on your head and you get another one before it fully heals, it can be 10 times, it just compounds, it just compounds. It's ex uh, uh, exponentially worse. So to heal... Our bodies have done this wonderful thing to protect us, and that is uh, depression. If it can put us into a depressed state or an anxious state, one that might prevent us from leaving our bed, from doing anything that might change the situation for our brain, that might put us at risk of getting another head trauma, well then good. The body doesn't care. The body doesn't care that you feel so fucking bad. The body doesn't care if it overcorrects so much that a poor kid who played football in high school and banged his head up too much and becomes suicidal and acts on it doesn't care. The body is not very good at foresight. The body just reacts, right? Just, it's just chemicals, just machines. And those may make mistakes at times. They don't operate with any kind of empathy. But you do. And so... It can be very hard to face this, but I think having an attitude of gratitude, sometimes it helps to look at these mechanisms in our brain as, as no more than what they are, a mechanism, a chemical that functions for some purpose. And that the same way you might get depressed when you're sick, well, that's a good way to keep you from leaving the house, from doing anything that might expose you to more germs or more dangers while your body's in a weakened state. Fear is something our body does to protect us. 
that's hard to look at. Easy to embrace, easy to ignore, easy to experience as something else. It makes me uncomfortable. I don't want to experience it. Right. And there's a lot to that. There's a lot for us to think about in that. And I think having a protective instinct as a culture is a really wonderful development that we haven't had for a long time. But as I get older and I realize how much I've personally tried to challenge myself without ever getting at the underlying true deep difficulties, the ways I could masquerade by doing fighting as a sport or other physically risky things that didn't really truly feel risky to me. I could look at and say, these feel culturally people think that this is risky. Culturally people think this is brave so I can slip under that. But what's really scary for me would be trying my hardest, would be facing my ego, my limitations as a person, the reality of having to actually engage with my own life of realizing that the only way I'm going to feel value is if I feel it and create it for myself and no amount of drugs or alcohol or sex or other people saying they adore me or whatever, tricking them into thinking I'm so charming or whatever, nothing else is going to do it that eventually I'm going to have to face that brokenness inside me and decide if I like being alive or not, like being me or not, like the opportunity that I get with this body and this brain and this spirit to interact with my world. That scares me. That scares me a lot. With jiu-jitsu, every time I've ever done a tournament, or even in class, rolling with people I think are scary, the most fascinating thing about every pattern that I've experienced with that, every time it's the same, the fear disappears on contact. It disappears. If, even if you lose, it, whatever, it just disappears. You're just doing what you do. Once you're in the fight, once you're engaged with it, no problem. It's the fear of the thing. People are really good at facing a scary thing when they know what it is. When they can name it and look at it from all sides, consider the object. When it's in the dark and we don't know what might be out there, I mean, that's just your caveman brain. That's your caveman brain doing this beautiful thing where it's able to think about all these horrible things that might be able to happen to you to prepare for the possibility of them. But you have to understand that's all it's there for. Something to help you, not to cripple you, not to paralyze you. It's not something you need to avoid feeling. It's just something you need to feel with moderation and with understanding of its intent. That it's there to help you. It's not there to be real. It's not there to ruin your life. And it's not there to captain the fucking ship, which a lot of us, I think, do. It's odd to do a mental health thing that I've explored for a long time because we're always dancing this line of validation and self-actualization. And I think... The reason we focus so much on validation is because so much of our culture and even our own experience does not validate our bad feelings. How many times have I said to myself, I don't have any real problems because it's just my fucking brain. How do I ever deal with the real problem of my fucking brain and feeling bad every day unless I validate it, right? And that validation does come from community. That's a real strength. That's a, that's a real reason for us as a culture to be validating the experiences everybody's having with their mental stuff, validating what we're learning every day about what traumas do to you and what chemicals in your brain do to you and these subjective experiences that are so real feeling and the reality of that. Yes. But just like this idea of in the dark, everything's terrifying. And when it's in the light, you know, you can approach the problem. Even if it is actually terrifying, if it's a big, scary tiger, you can at least start to figure out, well, oof, this is a bad situation, but how am I going to, what am I going to do about it? Maybe a spear would help. I don't know, <laughs> you know, or a door, a gate, something. I can do things about this. I'll figure it out. Because then your brain's working. It's fighting. It's processing. It's doing something that the only real failure, I think, personally, and failure is a word let's hold lightly, the, the most insidious challenge to overcome is the one of letting the fear run the show, 
rolling over because you're just like, oh, it's too scary to try my hardest. It's too scary to think I'm going to lay it all out there and still lose. You can't be attached to outcomes because the universe is crazy. The universe, the meritocracy does not exist. It exists when it's useful for you to realize how wonderful you are, how powerful and capable, how, how your hard work matters. And when that gets you someplace, look at what you've done and be grateful for it. And the same side where you've gone and respected yourself more and known that there is virtue in trying your hardest because it's beautiful to do so and it can be rewarded that way. The flip side is always there to humble us and know to be grateful to some degree, but also I think just as a beautiful expression of the absurdity of all things. And I think for gratitude and I think for consideration and acceptance and love and respect of other people to know that everything's random, right? That there's no meritocracy to some degree. There's so many other factors that we can't figure out about why things work some places and don't others. And attaching ourselves to those outcomes, I mean, it would be like thinking you deserved it because a meteor hit the earth. That's absurd. It's a rock flying through space, you know? But both things have to live in this dialectic. So letting fear run the show. while it has valuable reasons to do so, isn't something we need to let it do. And that leaving this validation phase, the one where you turn the lights on and see the scary monster, see the tiger, whatever, that this being alone part, where in our aloneness, we will face ourselves, we'll face our issues, we'll face our difficulties, dialogue with them and take them in. And with dignity and stoicism, choose our responses sometimes, even if those are micro responses, micro behaviors, even if it's just the whisper of a, I'd prefer not to do what you say, mental stuff. That spark of resistance and of self-knowledge and self-declaration is so magical and I think it's a bad rap because of all the nonsense rhetoric about pulling yourself out by your bootstraps in a rigged game and all this nonsense that exists out there. It gets a bad rap. So much just toxic bullshit attached to suck it up and be a savage, you know, the fucking these Instagram like fitness dudes and shit, right? If it if it's beneficial to you and fun and you like to talk to yourself that way. Yeah, fucking suck it up. Fine. Works for me sometimes and I do it. But that there is something really beautiful and wonderful about looking at this aloneness. And in that aloneness on a more mundane level, man, that time, you know, when I had this panic ticket when I was in my 20s, in the intervening time, how shitty I was when I felt alone, that I blamed other people for not showing up for me or not pulling me out of my aloneness better or something like that. I'd be like, where were you? Why don't you show up for me? Why was I so mad about that? I think now because they forced me to be with myself and I hated being with myself so much because I hate myself so much that I was mad at them. Not fair, but human. And as I spent time with myself, man, you start to find little things you like about yourself. You start to find little things you like about the silence. And, and if not the silence, the noise you can make in silence alone. The things you can do and feel in your body. Leisure time. Alone time. Just you and this beautiful universe experiencing it. Man, it's so scary when it's forced on you. And I think that fear of the version of aloneness that's forced on us, we are allowed to reappropriate, repurpose, seize, and declare as your own this aloneness. Me with my good, bad brain. Me with my good, bad universe. Me against this storm, this impossibility as this tiny speck in this infinite place that is itself infinite. 
I think it can be wonderful. And I think the greatest gift we can give to other people with our love and with our positive visions of them and our connections that let each other know we're not alone is to confirm for other people also, as they can do for us if we let them, that they are everything they'll ever need and more because they're able to buoy me or you. They bring beautiful things into the universe that are singular to them, a beautiful kind of strength that says, damn, I believe in you. Take it for what it's worth. I don't think you even need it because I'd assume that you just believe in yourself, how great you are, the way you walk around and the way you light up this universe with your own peculiar little flame, the warmth that you bring, the other fires you're able to ignite and spark with that heat, that little torch in you. That you say to people, I'm here for you. I'm here with you when I can't be here for you. I experience what you experience. Even if we cannot speak and I'm unavailable for whatever reasons I am, practical and otherwise, though that is true, you should know that you don't need me because you're so much that you are there for me when you're not even around. The thought of you existing and doing what you do and being how you are in the universe. This gift of saying, you as an alone person are infinite and enormous and powerful. And even when you feel so small or impossible and afraid, that's not you. That's tricks, that stuff you're experiencing. That may be a trial, a tribulation, right? That may be a crucible. It's just an experience. And it's as true as you let it be. And I think we let it be true sometimes. And by letting it be so, it is. Overwhelmingly. And I've been trying to let some other things be true. That I am. Enough. And that the outcome doesn't matter. The universe is dialectic. That is what I think about it and everything else except me. That is the flow and the experience of it that is beautiful. The striving, the trying, the growth, and the shrinking, all of it. The movement of it. And that is what I want to be. As wholly moving and trying and striving and living as I can be. And that the only way I fail myself, again, holding it lightly, because we fail every fucking goddamn day and every moment, it doesn't matter that much. The only failure is not trying. Not letting ourselves be ourselves, our wonderful selves, our gift to the universes that we are. I don't know. I said I'm going to try not to say I don't know anymore at the end of things. Because isn't that disregarding? I do fucking know. I've been through this shit. And I'm sure I'll have a mental breakdown again. I'm sure I'll have a depressive episode that just feels so infinitely dark and impossible and just impenetrable with fear. But it doesn't matter. I know now the me that I can come back to the me that will always be here through my ups and downs and roller coasters and all the beautiful colors of being a person. That is real. That is, that is something I know. That I'm enough. And that no one is going to give a fuck if I find out I'm not enough. And no one is really going to give a fuck if I never even try, except me. But that if I do try my hardest, just truly lay it out there, make my life a barn burner, make my life one where I just swing for the fences, I'm fully myself, wholly myself, I'm using all the parts of me as best as I can, that could inspire somebody 
that could make a better universe. Aren't those the stories that we seem to love the most as people? The stories of the underdog, the stories of somebody who fully strives, Icarus to some degree, flying too close to the sun. Fuck yeah. I know that's supposed to be a cautionary tale, but I think it probably inspired a lot more inventors than it did (laughs) warn them off. I wonder if I could fly also. I bet there's a way I could do it to get even closer to the sun without it melting off the feathers. How could I fix that? I didn't even know flying was a possibility, but now I do. And I'm sure there's a way we could do it more. So let's fucking try, you know? Let's spend some time alone with ourselves. If you feel ready for that, if you feel possible with that, let's spend some time alone. And let's feel how allowed we are to be strong and how allowed we are to have dignity and stoicism if we want, how allowed we are to dictate our responses to some degree. Let's take our medication too. That's also a choice. (laughs) That's also a choice (laughs) that empowers me with my subjective experience. So I do it because I've realized it makes a big difference when I don't. You got to check in with yourself. Nothing is a blanket statement, right? Nothing is 100% policy. It's a dialectic universe, y'all. Meet yourself where you're at. But today, I just want to introduce this possibility because it's been helping me lately to face the parts of me that are really scary and to realize, yeah, you know, in a lot of ways, we're ultimately alone. My experience of the universe is one that I'm having My experience with myself is one that I'm having. And I believe I have some choices that I can make around it. Just a thought. Dignity and stoicism. We all have our demons. We all have our thing we need to work on. If dignity and stoicism is something you've got in spades, oh yeah, crack that open. Be a fucking weirdo. Cry more. Cry a lot, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Start recognizing the connections between you and the universe around you. It's really important that you do that. But if your problem is that you feel you have no boundary to the universe, which I feel, to other people and their emotional experiences and their opinions of you, real or imagined, their reactions to you, showing up for you or not, or whatever. If your universe is one where you just feel constantly being pulled and swayed around in this brackish zone where your salt water and your fresh water of the universe and all that stuff is all mixing and mashing and pulling you in all these directions and you feel fucking insane, if that's your thing, then let's try some alone. It's helped me. It helped me start to get real about some stuff. And it makes me feel a lot stronger. Blow shit up. You know what I mean? Be your biggest self. Redline this motherfucker. You know? Take your life. Drive it like you stole it. Just fucking go for it. Just fucking go for it. It's a beautiful thing. I'm uh, not feeling very afraid this moment about fighting in a couple days, but, you know, who knows? Who knows how that'll go? I'm sure it'll get real fucking anxious. Might have some difficulty sleeping the night before, and then I'll probably feel very sleepy right before the match, and then I'll get out there, and I'll just do jujitsu, man. I'm going to just do my thing. I'm going to try to do it as hard and soft as possible. You know, it's a dialectic thing. It's funny. I was training. I was so tired and just mentally defeated. And my last hard training day was really rough. And one of the guys I trained with, who's really, really tough. He told me, he's like, he felt stiffer today than usual. And he was right. And I was tiring the fuck out of myself. So being strong doesn't mean being stiff and being explosive and doing your best version of yourself and trying your hardest doesn't always mean clutching and squeezing and trying. Trying your hardest can look like just breathing and being receptive. And that gets tricky, and then we get real fucking wishy-washy about the gray areas. In the most recent Fight Stuff podcast, I was talking to Zeke about stuff. He said the gray space, being the gray spaces between things, and I heard it as grace space. 
And I think that we can all take that black and white universe, right? I think everybody loves to say it's a black, people think it's black and white, but it's really just shades of gray. We see it in shades of gray. Those gray spaces, gray spaces. <laughs> Breathe there. Let yourself live and flow. And that's how you're going to be your biggest, most beautiful self. Electric, vibrant, flowing, strong, flexible. Just like this fucking dancer with the universe, you know? Ugh, so good. So good. All right. Thanks for letting me brain breathe. Um, I hope that was useful to you. Hydrate. Self-care, my friends. Let's fucking do this thing, you know? Try thinking about spending some time alone. Talking with yourself. Being with yourself. Loving yourself. This is where I think the real self-care comes in. It's like, how is self-care? You know, people like see you working out hard or something. And sometimes that doesn't read as self-care. That looks very difficult. Because challenging myself is self-care. It makes me happy the same way it makes Bodhi happy to run around and chase things and pull things and bite things and chew, <laughs> sprint after other dogs and wrestle. How is that fun, Bodhi? How is that good for you? Isn't that just exhausting? Don't you want to just lay here and get pet and stuff like that? He does not. Sometimes. But mostly, he does not. Challenging ourselves. There's something really special there. Self-care can be challenging. It can be uncomfortable. Let's try it, you know? All right. I love this idea of hold things lightly. Don't put too fine a point on it. And that's literally all I try to do is find all these fine points. It's this constant flow of getting really close to the edge. This fine, 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 specific point. Fine, 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 specific point. Oh, I don't want to buttonhole this too hard though i don't want to shove it into a little cabinet and say it's just this thing so let's back off touch it really precisely and then back off and float away into it that's what the i don't know is it's a safety you know at the end of everything i don't know and i go back and forth the way i like to use the phrase like 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 and and i don't knows because in that vagueness sometimes you get a real truth i don't want anybody to feel too attached to the words too attached to the idea i want them to find what is useful and take it with them Again, let it serve you. Figure out what serves you. And if this whole podcast was bullshit for you, throw it out. Fucking throw it out. Find what works for you. Let it serve you. Just know that sometimes the uncomfortable things, the fear, the aloneness, the difficulty, the need or imperative to be stoic maybe or have dignity sometimes where you just get this stiff upper lip and find that part of yourself that straightens up your spine and takes it on the chin and says, nice try. You're trying to hurt me, world. Have another one. Turn the other cheek, you know. I got this. You got this. All right. Self-care hydrate. Much love. Much love. I love you. Who knows? Love. It's everywhere. It's fucking crazy. Thanks for being with me today. Hey, if you get something out of my good bad brain, consider supporting it at patreon.com slash mygoodbadbrain. Leave us uh, positive reviews and share with people that you like if you think that they would like it. Or people you don't like. Who knows? If you think people would get something out of it, let them try. I like this thing growing. It's nice to have more people connected to it. All right. Be well. Bye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. 
Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.